is the Modern Rubbish Podcast with your hosts, Wyatt Koish and David Paha. In this episode, The Canal. Enjoy! Well, I'm not sure. I don't know. I don't know. Um, but yeah, so The Canal, uh, Irish-Welsh co-production, made in Ireland, uh, directed by I- Ivan Kavanaugh, who mm. is not, I haven't seen any of his other movies. No, I, I, I've never seen anything else. Um, Would you call this an independent film? It I guess seems... it, it seems pretty indie. Yeah. Um, I, but it I, was... I feel like getting government funding, you're still able to count as being an indie thing. Oh, that's true. Yeah, it makes sense. Um, but it is of a high quality. Oh, definitely. The, eff- the effects are all really high quality. So Yeah. Um, I mean, that's actually like... Uh, I mean, okay, whatever. As as always, spoilers. If you want to see the movie without hearing anything about it, now is your time. Go watch it. Uh, it's around because we're going to talk about stuff, and I don't want to worry about that. Um, so the reason that I, I saw this movie probably shortly after it came out, sometime mm. 2015 or 16, let's say, and um, and then it just popped back into my head the other like a couple weeks ago for some reason, but specifically because there is a part, an aspect of the climax to the movie. I'm like, that's just the ring. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. just the climax that's... of the ring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was thinking that. And same so thing, suddenly yeah. that, that, that scene came back into my mind the other night and I was like, yeah, wait a minute. What was that movie? What was that movie that just brazenly had the climax to the <laughs> ring in it yeah. as the climax? And yeah. so then I tried to, I was, what the fuck was it called? And I was like, I list of Irish horror movies. And I was looking all around for it. And then I, my wife has a number of Irish friends. So I was like, okay, maybe, hey, can, if I describe this movie, can you ask your friends what it was? And she, yeah, sure. And so I was like, all right, it's about this guy uh, whose like wife disappears. And then he starts getting haunted by like ghosts. And there's like a public toilet. And I think she ends up like she's in a like his wife is in a ditch or a canal. I think the movie's called The Canal. Let me Google that really quickly, <laughs> and then I Google it. It's like, yeah, you don't need to ask your friends anymore because it's called The Canal. <laughs> the Canal, yeah. Um, so I've also just synopsized the movie there. <laughs> I guess. That, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that's actually <laughs> true. Yeah, that's truly what happened. Um, but yeah, no, it, there was the ring. I was like, and but it it, it was cool. It wasn't like. It was totally the ring. It was. It's <laughs> in that moment. It made me uh, think a little bit like I know we we were texting about this also like at some point relatively recently but how you know sometimes you we were talking about the the Radiohead song videotape and the realization that it is like compositionally speaking basically just a Brian Eno and Harold Budd song called uh Not Yet Remembered. Like it's the yeah. same chords played in the same way with the same wordless choir bridge thing and that there's kind of this moment of realizing that something is like oh you you're just doing the thing that this pre-existing thing did but that for example in the case of radiohead's videotape it does actually become a different song it does actually we can yeah. have that realization of wow this is that harold bud brian Eno song but also it's its own thing yeah oh yeah absolutely yeah and so i think there can be a similar thing in you know, a movie sort of like this, where you you get this climactic moment of like a 
a dirty, waterlogged, dead woman with her black hair pulled in front of her face coming out of a moving frame of image. Yeah. Of a, of a film image, you know, crawling across the floor and killing someone and be like, that's from The Ring. Yeah. And yet still feel like, yeah, but it actually does fit in this movie too. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I, guess, I guess it's just like, uh, it's an effective uh, a tool for cinema. Mm-hmm. Because that was the one thing about this movie is that I wrote down the horror faces the viewer. And that's, that's yeah. the thing. It's like with The Ring, you're watching a videotape. So you're facing like right on with this supernatural force that's going to, you know, that's meeting you. Yeah. Uh, and so, and then, uh, you know, when the thing, when whatever comes out of the, the moving frame at you, it's coming to toward you you know yeah so when you're viewing the movie as the viewer now like us we see we're faced head on we're not seeing like and this happens a lot in this movie like for instance he's on like a web chat the webcam chat with his his son his young son in the hotel room and then from the dark corner of the hotel room this guy comes up to the camera to face you you know the viewer and that happens a lot where things are just coming out to face you directly. Whereas in some horror, they, they come out to face the protagonist or they come out to face other characters or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. So yeah, the ring, the ring has a little bit of that. And then this, this draws from that same method, I think. From that same well, you might say. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> um. Yeah, I mean, this This even begins, like, the first shot is, that you know, David, the main character, looking right at you. Like, he is right. he is looking into the camera lens and mm, right. yeah. at you and saying, I mean, that was, this was something that I had forgotten. Because um, mostly I, I would say my memories of this movie from eight years ago or whatever were basically of that scene where I'm like, that's from The Ring. And then uh, just sort of very broad, like, right, there's a lot of, like, running around in a house and there's, like, uh, a canal. <laughs> it was, so it was very, yeah. it was very vague. But so the movie opens with our protagonist, David, you know, looking right into the camera and and, you know, telling us to, you know, settle down and then, you know, who wants to see some ghosts. And, you know, then we see that he's talking to a room full of, you know, elementary school age children and they they start to settle down. Oh, ghosts, ghosts, really? And he's like, yeah, you know, we're going to watch some old archival films and everyone in these movies is dead. So what you're seeing <laughs> is, is a ghost and the kids get disappointed and yeah, everything like that. But that is something that really impressed me, impressed itself upon me or whatever on viewing it this time, which was like, that was a really big thought for me at some point when I was a teenager, um, listening to music and realizing that like John Lennon is a ghost, mm. you know, um, Kurt Cobain is a ghost, you know, yeah. that, that you put on these songs by, you know, long dead artists and specifically singers. And like, you're hearing the voice of a dead man. Yeah. Right. And then realizing that that of course applies to movies that, you know, you, when you're when you're seeing that, it is like some kind of ghost. You're able to right. draw up some ghost of Heath Ledger or, yeah, you know, right. uh, absolutely, yeah, James Dean or whoever, and 
That's the that's the amazing thing of this because this is a horror movie like The Ring is based around technology, mm-hmm. right? So particularly film technology. But um, like if you're listening to Kurt Cobain or whoever, you know, Jimi Hendrix or whatever, you know, that was audio recording technology that allows us to perceive people who are essentially ghosts now. Yeah. You know, it, like it, it gives us a glimpse into this nether realm which captured their spirit at a time, you know? Yeah. But now they're gone. And in the movie here, it's it's literally uh, film cameras that he's using. He's using old film technology. Yeah. To to try and capture these these ghosts. Yeah. On the film. So it, it is like literally that recording technology that you're describing. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that that was, that was like a really cool place for them to to kind of begin from like, you want to see a ghost? And of course, we know we're going to see some ghosts because we're watching a horror movie. But then also that reminder that like, yeah, actually, most movies are are ghost stories because they have dead actors in mm, them. Yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, mo- yeah. there are in, in all likelihood, one or two dead actors in most movies. <laughs> <laughs> that you've <laughs> that you've seen <laughs> right like, yeah um so yeah then you know quick rundown is this character david you know is he's a works for the irish national film archive um he has a you know wife alice and their son whose name escapes me um billy 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 there you go and um he uh David starts to become suspicious that Alice is, you know, cheating on him or something is going on behind his back. He discovers that that is indeed the case that she's uh you know messing around with uh like a coworker of hers. Uh then she disappears, find, you know, winds up dead in the canal by their house. David has, you know, uh paranormal experiences, hallucinations, visions, whatever you want to call them, that lead him to suspect that Alice was murdered by the ghost of a long, you know, a early 20th century uh, murderer who lived in their house. And he then uses his old, you know, hand crank cameras that he has access to from the National Archive to try sort of, you know, ghost hunter style to record uh you know evidence of this in the vain hope that he can exonerate himself from suspicion because you know there's always that idea of the husband is the first suspected when there's a dead wife but also in the thought that maybe there's some way to right this wrong or whatever so mm. uh yeah. the answer is that there is not <laughs> um <laughs> that there are indeed ghosts he does indeed capture them on film, but that there is nothing he can do about it. <laughs> um, mm, so, yeah. like a good horror story. So, yeah, no, that's kind of it's kind of interesting that the not necessarily knowing if the ghosts are real, mm-hmm. because for throughout most of the movie, it's like hinted that it's all in his head. Yeah, and you're like, other characters are not seeing it; they're not understanding it, and plus, he's he went through a traumatic experience of his wife stepping out on him and him basically having a breakdown Yeah, and then her showing up dead, you know? So then it's suggested, did he, did he kill her? You know, did he freak out and kill her or was it this truly supernatural force that did it? Yeah. 
or did this force do it through him? Exactly. Because yeah, that's that's yeah. sort of the thing that was like when I was watching it, uh, you know, the other over the weekend um, in advance of this, I was thinking, I was thinking basically like, man, it's really obvious that he did it. <laughs> you know, like yeah. it starts, I'm like, yeah. yeah, it's very clear that he murdered his wife. Like that's 100% what's going on here is that like, this is a dude who killed yeah. his cheating wife because he walked in on them, you know, uh, in flagrante delicto. Is that the, <laughs> is that the phrase? <laughs> that? The like old, the antiquated phrase. Oh, yeah. That's, I, like I think that. that was like what you would get charged. <laughs> that would be a part of your adultery charge back in like Scarlet oh, Lair wow, days. Really? <laughs> Maybe I'm wrong, but um, <laughs> but no, that uh, it seemed very clear to me. Like there is no mystery here. This dude is hallucinating ghosts because he just walked in on some sexy man bun guy banging his wife, and uh, <laughs> yeah. and he killed her. Um, yeah, yeah, I was thinking that too. And so it was sort of it was like a little bit annoying to me where I was like, I know you're trying to do the turn of the screw thing of like, is he crazy or, or are the ghosts real? And I was like, they're, they're fucking hallucinations. He's like, you're, you're signaling pretty yeah. hard that this dude is nuts. But then by the end, it started to be like, ah, shit, wait, I actually think the ghosts are real and they're acting through him. That like, yeah. we're in kind of a both land where it's like, he did kill his wife but also there are yeah. the ghosts and right. they did influence him, you know, to either possess him or whatever it is. But right. So it was a, it was kind of the rare case of something like this, where by the end, my feeling about, you know, man, I know where this is going. It's pretty obvious what the conclusion of this is going to be that by the actual end, I was like, huh, no, no, I actually didn't see that coming. Right. Well, also, and it's it's pretty, like, clearly the point is made that it was outside of him because, well, like, so the, what would you be, the, the sort of first ending, because there's, like, a second ending too, right? Yeah. So the first ending is, like, yeah, he he was crazy and he killed everyone himself because um, he has his coworker Claire, who comes to like deliver this film that he was so adamant about developing quickly. And then he shows her and that that's the climax of the, of his dead wife coming through the wall, you know, like the ring, like the ring and killing Claire, like, um, and then he tries to escape or something, but it gives you the flashback that shows you the reality where it was, Oh, he freaks out. There's no, no one in the footage. He's seeing it himself. And then he kills his coworker. Yeah. strangling her and then escapes. But then the second ending, the very end, obviously this kid, Billy, now has no parents. And so his grandmother or whatever is is like, okay, we're going to sell the house and move on. And Billy goes back to get his, I don't know why. His dinosaur book. Yeah, his dinosaur book, which should have been cleared out. If you're selling the house, you clear Yeah, like don't leave but, your uh, dinosaur book. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's important. Man. Yeah. Uh, but then through a crack in the wall, Billy sees his dad, like the spirit of his dad. Yeah. And his dad is like enchanting, the dead dad ghost thing is enchanting him and being like, hey, you want to be with us, you know, forever? You know and what so, to do, yeah. Yeah, you know what to do. And then, you know, Billy 
hops out of a moving car. <laughs> yeah, it's which is pretty like very effective. Um, you know, you just see him. You know, the grandma's driving away, and Billy's in the back seat, and then you just see him like unbuckle his seatbelt, open the yeah. door, start to fall out, then you know, screech, scream whatever, and then it cuts back yeah. to the empty house where the real estate agent is closing up and she sees, you know, Billy cl- yeah. closing the bedroom door. And... Right, right. So, so I thought that, I mean, yeah, that it. was a cool, like, oh, shit, okay, so the ghosts are real. Yeah. Yeah, and so Billy came into contact with this ghost at the end. Yeah. So yeah, so does the ghost the ghosts then they can only do one person at a time. <laughs> so Yeah, I guess it's a, it, it's a one by one thing. Yeah. Or but also like you think about um maybe they emerge from trauma. So I was thinking about this because the it like takes over your perception, right? So it has this maybe it needs the mind to be in this particularly uh, like malleable state, and it happens to David, the main character, when he finds out that his wife is cheating on him. Because they they'd been living in the house for five years, I think. Like at the beginning of the film, they buy the house and they're really happy. You know, she's pregnant. Yeah, and so it looks like this bright future ahead of them. And then it's like five years later, they're having troubles. Um, but there's no ghost activity within that five years and then she she's cheating on him or and then he starts to unravel because i think he suspects that she's cheating on him definitely get that feeling that yeah yeah there's early on there's like they're like making love and then you know they finish up and she just rolls over and is like all right peace yeah (laughs) and so it's clear like she's like oh no i'm i'm not in this, you know. Yeah, and then he's he sees like they go to a work event and he sees her, you know, acting a little too close with sexy man bun guy and right. Or he might be ponytail guy, I don't really remember, but um, Yeah, maybe he bunned the tail. Yeah, you the they're not mutually exclusive. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh yeah, so she, you know, he he gets a he has his suspicions and and then there's also the, you know, this this public toilet looks like the bathroom from Train Spotting kind of yeah <laughs> kind of spot that you know he and his that that David and his son walk by uh, like oh I'm taking you to school and we're, they walk by the public toilets and the son is like I've heard there's ghosts the other kids say that toilet is haunted like mm. whatever and so it's sort of that's the kind of where the ghost thing comes in is this idea that you know there's the haunted washroom by by the canal and the son says like oh you know can can we go in and he's like no it's fucking gross why do you want to go in there and it's like yeah well, can i throw a rock in and see if anything happens and okay son and he throws a rock in and there's a there's a kind of line of thinking at least that that might have stirred the ghosts if we mm. say that okay let's say that the, the public toilet is in fact haunted you know but that the ghosts maybe go dormant right no one's using that that room because it's all gross. It's like the bathroom train spotting and whatever. And so the ghosts sort of settle and that, you know, then this this kid throwing a rock in there is like, it's like throwing a rock into a cave and then the bats wake up and then... Mm, yeah. Because then after David walks in on, you know, he follows his wife, watches her go on a date with Man Bun Guy 
watches her go back to, you know, his house, sneaks into the house, watches them bang, debates killing them, <laughs> picks up a hammer, is full of rage, then take, has a moment of seeing himself, oh no, I can't do this, you know, and then leaves. And as he's rushing home, you know, he feels sick. And so he ends up in that public toilet to throw up. Oh, yeah. And that's when this, you know, weird, tall ghost man presents himself. And so it does sort of seem like, okay, maybe yeah. the sun throwing the rock in there kind of, you know, woke something up. Yeah. Well, that's good. That's interesting. Because then you think that if ghosts are haunting a place that they're just like on blast all the time. Yeah. They're like, yeah, we're ready to hunt. 24 fucking seven, all eternity, you know? Like, but maybe they, maybe they take some off seasons, you know? Maybe they're hibernating or something and it takes some energy to awaken them. So it's like, yeah, how did he get infected? Um, yeah, wait, so wait, I, I was trying to think too, that was there someone in the house before them? I don't remember, like, you mean who they bought the house from or? Yeah, because so there's the, the older murderer. Yeah, from like 1902. Yeah, something like that. And then there had to be inhabitants yeah. between that. So as far as that opening scene, because yeah, the, the the beginning of the movie, you know, there's the he shows the the old footage to the elementary school kids, and then he says, Okay, I gotta go see this house with my wife. And they do the walkthrough. This is our new home or whatever. I d I don't recall there being anything in that scene about like, oh, what happened to the why is this house so cheap? Or, you know, I don't yeah. think it would, there was anything like that. So, oh, but he does see kind of a sort of apparition. He does in the hallway when they first walk in there. Yeah, he sees a like just a a vague shape, you know, like go through a door and then right. follows it, and you know, oh, it's nothing. And so I think you know, then then yeah. basically what ends up happening is kind of concurrently with David sussing out that you know Alice, his wife, is probably cheating on him he is given uh, some old film reels at work to, you know, catalog. And so right. he watches these reels from, you know, the early 20th century and they're, they're from the police. So they're, you know, crime scene footage and um, stuff like that. And as he's watching, as he's watching the footage, he's like, that's my house, which I also thought was awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just, just imagining being in that, that uh, kind of, that kind of space of like, what the fuck? <laughs> like, that's yeah. my front door. That's, yeah. you know, yeah. the tree out front isn't there yet because it was a hundred years ago, but that's my house. Like, <laughs> that's... Which is hilarious to me because Claire, his coworker, kept giving him this film. Yeah. I would have been like, yo, Claire, why are you handing me the shit that keeps having my house in it? I know. <laughs> With all this gruesome shit happening. You're like, you know where I live. Like, yeah. <laughs> how do you yeah, you didn't notice it? You didn't notice it? You know? Yeah. Yeah, you've been to my house. How did you not realize that this is... <laughs> but so then that makes him, you know, he he sees that like, oh, in 1902, this, you know, his house was the site of a grisly murder where a husband, you know, went insane and stabbed his wife 70 times or, and then killed the kids and then... Whatever, and so then the next hour or something of the movie, he's doing the like uh, Charlie Day like connections wall thing with pieces of string between crime scene and this is how it all connects because he's finding then that like in the interim, yeah. oh, there was another time in the forties <laughs> when 
a guy killed himself. And then there was another time in the seventies when a woman drowned her son. And so he's starting to build his like conspiracy wall. Um, yeah. With, so I think it's only in that point when he starts act, actually like doing the research that he discovers like, oh shit, it seems like everybody who's lived in this house has had some kind of horrible. Now that you, when you brought up the Charlie Day <laughs> conspiracy wall, which is hilarious. Um, I didn't notice that until just now that that's the wall then that becomes the like weird, weirdly haunted wall with the hole behind it and stuff. Like either is he drawn to that wall and it like, it's like drawing his energy towards it. And that's the wall he chooses to then focus his like neuroses on, you know, like, Oh, I got to figure it out. Or did he create that weird energy by putting all of his, his weird shit onto the wall. And then that wall becomes the, then the wall, which, you know, as the movie unfolds is, is particularly evil. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Where he 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 ends up cracking open the wall and finding a kind of crawl space hidden area behind it where he finds footage and uh, photos of like child sacrifice, right. you know, satanic satanic style stuff from the forties or whatever, and then that's the wall on which he projects the film in the climactic scene out of which his dead wife comes. Sadako from the ring style. And then that's also the crack, you know, it's been repaired a bit, but that's the crack where then when Billy comes in, in the very end, where David is now on mm. the other side of it saying, Hey, do you want to, do you want to be with me and mom? Like, yeah, you know what to do. So it does feel like, yeah, I don't have any real indication of whether it's, it's like, did his energy create that as a sort of focal point for it? Or was he drawn there? I could see it going either way, but yeah, because uh, yeah. you would say that he would be drawn from it because there's material already in it, but that material may or may not be real. It may be in his imagination. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I do think there's something like, I mean, when I think about these Ecology of Souls books, which are really, really, really good um, and have a good amount to do, you know, a good amount of ghost stuff comes up in there and mm. and all that. And it does make me think that there's like, sort of about these ideas of like, what, (laughs) I mean, very broadly stated, just like, yeah, what are ghosts? But then part of that thinking about like, well, so then what would being a ghost be? You know, what would, because most of the time, horror movies, horror stories or whatever, it's always the, the, the perspective that we have is our perspective, either as the, the viewers of a film or the character that we're, relating to is the haunted person is we're meant to relate to David and say, okay, so I am living my normal life. And now all of a sudden these ghosts are here. And maybe with something like the ring, you, you have the explicit curse thing of where did this ghost come from? Oh, okay. So she was murdered in a well and now she's on a videotape and that's what we're doing or, or something like this. Like, okay, it was all with this guy in 1902 killed his wife and, something like that. But then when you try to think about like, well, so then we've sort of hinted at this, but like, yeah, so are are those ghosts just around all the time? Do they go dormant? Mm. Do they, and you have sort of like the, the stone tape idea, which comes from a BBC BBC movie called the stone tape, which maybe at some point we'll talk about. Yeah. Hell yeah. But 
you know, that's that movie gave the name to an idea that's existed in kind of paranormal field for a, a long time, which is the thought that the ghosts are actually just residual images from life, that there's not actually any intelligence or consciousness to a ghost. It's an echo of, yeah. of a moment when a human was alive and that something about the physical space that we've decided is haunted is like amplifying that. And so... Yeah, it's almost like it's recorded in the stone tape. It's recorded into the stone. Like it's recorded into the material, which ties back to that technology concept that we have here of recording, seeing ghosts, you know, that maybe the the haunted house, the the energy from these ghosts or these events is like physically imprinted into the material the same way you would press uh, the wax of a vinyl or something like that. Yeah, the, the, yeah. The, the bits of rust on a tape or whatever. And that, I mean, when I'm thinking about this, it, it's, this is sort of where I'm at now, which is not in any way meant to be authoritative or um, <laughs> that I actually know anything, but that my thought is kind of like that there's something like, I, I guess, basically co-creational about ghosts. Mm. That it's like, we need each other for the interaction to happen, that a ghost can't be in an empty room. Yeah. That it needs an observer. That's interesting. Yeah, like the ghost still, the same way that maybe humans, we have to consume food and other things to survive. Like a ghost maybe cannot, it has to consume something. It has to consume energy to have energy or something. Yeah, that there's something like, you know, there's something like that going on that it can, that you wouldn't ever have a ghost in an unobserved room, that it can only be there when you're there because yeah. there's something going on. And this, this could come into, into play, for example, like that it requires imagination, that it, it yeah. uh, requires us to be in a receptive state, you know, something like that where we're kind of like, okay, we're in the haunted house where are the ghosts or whatever, and that like something we've hinted at before with the Ramsey Dukes, Charlton and the Magus thing, or um, something about this came up in the oh, the just like the general sort of fake it till you make it thing. That there's some part of this mm, that like yeah, we're we might be partially responsible for creating the ghost, but then the ghost is really there. Yeah, and that there's so that there's something to this where it's like going back to the canal where it's like, yeah, so that stuff behind the wall that David finds, like, is it real or is it imaginary or whatever, that it, it starts to get into kind of, well, it's both. It wasn't there before he thought it was there, but now it is yeah. there. Yeah. You know, th right. There weren't, before he thought there were ghosts, he was just a cuckold, <laughs> you <Right>. know? <laughs> but then by being in that state where he's like, oh God, what do I do? Then something else comes into being. And once that thing, right. that weird ghost has come into being, then it's like, ah, oh, fuck, this is actually here now. Yeah. And now this actually is possessing me. This actually is, you know, going to compel my son to kill himself. This is actually doing this yeah. stuff. But that its birth was partially imaginal. Yeah, absolutely. Which in my opinion makes it, <laughs> strangely optimistic <laughs> in that there's not a permanent, like if you, if you go to this location, you're fucked, right. You know, there is a, there is a cause for this. And if there is a cause that, uh, or 
yeah, if there's an exchange or a cause of of this event coming to be, then then there's a possibility to have it disperse properly, you know, in, in whatever way. Obviously, this movie doesn't it it doesn't disperse itself. It follows through in a destructive manner until everyone's dead, basically, right? But but for instance, right, like maybe him showing up at the house when they first buy it and seeing just the tiny hint of an apparition is because there's a heightened state of like joyful energy. Yeah. But it doesn't give the spirit of the place. It doesn't give it, um, if it's a malevolent kind of energy, it doesn't give it the in to then inhabit it. Uh, uh, like inhabit his mind, you know, Mm -hmm. but once adultery comes in, and the whole foundation is shaken five years later, then the ghost is like, okay, this I can creep in here, you know? Yeah, exactly. Because it's almost like um, like if your immune system is compromised from one disease or something, then you could be hindered by a separate disease. Like people who have immune system problems, then they don't die because of the immune system problem. They die because of some other thing that comes in. Yeah is able to creep in from a weakened immune system. Exactly. So it's like his psychic immune system is weakened from the adultery and then it allows these ghosts or like demonic presence, whatever you want to call it, to creep in then and inhabitate him. <laughs> you know. Um, Sorry. <coughs> no, no. Uh-oh. <laughs> yeah, coughing right after that. Um, Not to- no, I think that that's... Um, I think that's a very good point because it's it also makes me think about um how uh okay I mean as a as a facet of of movies common common paranormal horror movie type scenario of why is only one character aware of the yeah the spooky ghost or the monster or the demon or whatever it is why you know that that's such a common thing that you mom dad teacher priest police officer, whoever, please, you got to believe me. What? I'm not seeing anything. And the the ghost is right there. And yeah, you know, so it's in plenty of movies. It's in this movie, you know, where he tries to show Claire, you know, look, there's my dead wife on the film reel. And, you know, I don't see anything. There's nothing there, David. And, and all that, but also thinking about like in reality, in (laughs) when you, that, that people can have different experiences at, let's say purportedly haunted spaces. Yeah. Where, um, I mean, we can get into this because why not? We've dispelled, you know, the the second Crampton episode came out where I admitted to being an apparent time traveler. So I think any, <laughs> yeah. the, 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 the cat's out of the bag on uh, us being nuts. <laughs> if, if you're inclined to think that that's nuts. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. No, but thinking like when I was, um, I mean, I can think of some stuff you and I have experienced together years ago. Yeah, we would do, we did this pretty regularly. We would find, especially in Los Angeles, it was pretty ripe for weird places. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, and I yeah. should say, like, I met my wife on exactly right. such an excursion <laughs> years yeah, ago, right. you know, looking, let's go to purportedly haunted places and creepy locations on right after Halloween and, you know, see what we feel, see what we see or whatever. And uh, then, yeah, you and I started doing that. Yeah. Um, 
And so I can think about like, you know, we can get into those if we want, but like those types of experiences where you're like, where multiple people are going to the same place, you've heard the stories or something, and then you don't experience anything at all, or you experience something different, or one of you sees something or hears something, but the other one doesn't. And you're that sort of thing, which leads me to, to feel that there's, it's not so much, I mean, maybe, maybe, um, people who worry about our sanity will be relieved to hear that that does lead me to think that ghosts do not so much objectively exist in some kind of like totally independent space, but that they really do have a lot to do with us as observers and sort of participants in the experience. And so that then the idea that one person sees or hears or feels something and the other one doesn't, it doesn't actually seem that strange because if I think about, say, always making analogies to, to music or whatever, but that some people are naturally have very good ears, for example. Um, our friend Vikram, very, very good, <laughs> very well ear trained or whatever, where yeah. I am completely inept. Yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> right. You know, where I... Uh, I'm terrible <laughs> at that kind of stuff. Right. And well, even yeah. like, oh no, sorry, but to continue with the ear analogy, because I like, I don't hear, I think I have very good ears, but I don't listen to traditional pitches. Right. I listen in like some synesthetic way, you know? So we're talking about three different ways people are perceiving music. Exactly. You know? Yeah. It, that's exactly it. And that like, or even just looking like, you're wearing your glasses right now, but I'm not, which means, you know, that like, I can't see quite as well at the other end of the room. My point in in all this, not to get lost in the weeds or whatever, is just that like, there are lots of other zones where people have kind of orientations towards a certain ability. Certain people are very good with language, where other people are better with numbers. Some people are more visually oriented there. They can draw with seemingly no effort. They can draw amazing photorealistic stuff. Right. And it just comes out of nowhere where that would be another zone where I feel completely inept. Um, <laughs> I can't. Somehow I feel like even my stick figures don't look good. And, <laughs> you know, it's... Um, and and then even, you know, thinking about stuff that, like, people... Uh, we, we can all have very different tastes. Like, I hate onions, for example. Um, right. Where other people might love onions or, but then also I hate onions, but I love garlic where those things are very closely related to each other. And one tastes awesome and the other one tastes horrible to me. And that's interesting too, because that's a qualitative thing, but we, we do know that people have genes that make them not like cilantro, you know? Yeah. That's Uh, one. Yeah. And you know, the, you know, the asparagus urine smell. Yep. You know that it like so everyone had everyone produces the enzyme that makes that smell, but you either do or do not have the gene to actually perceive it. I see. So some people don't smell it. It's not because it's not there. It's because they don't actually smell it. Yeah. Yeah. So that there's a genetic thing with that. You know, some people like you know. So yeah, there's an actual. If you're looking for scientific hard data. It's possible that the, I mean, obviously the way we perceive, yeah, which is subjective, is tied to the hard data, yeah. Well, and even, yeah, just that like, you know, a person who's, um, I mean, uh, like I, I, I have taken very good care of my ears over, over the years, but um, I will still occasionally do the thing of like uh, 
how high can I hear still? What where's the high cutoff for my hearing now? You know, and oh uh, yeah, because there is that general decline in you know your high frequency uh, hearing as you get older. That and, yeah, and there's yeah. there's all those those examples of whatever like a, a cell phone ringtone that no one over forty can hear or something like that. And yeah, um, colorblindness or I don't know. There's all kinds of very sort of mundane ways in which we recognize that we can be in the same space uh, and yet be experiencing that space very differently. Um, And I guess what I'm sort of saying where now that all sounds very sane, where I'm going to depart from sanity again, is is that I do think that that, um, that that can mean then that depending on your sort of your state, your ability to perceive your inclinations in one direction or another, that that can allow certain things to then actually come into existence. That there are certain states or ideas or beings or whatever it is that need to be perceived prior to existing, but that, and that they may only exist in perception, but that that existence is still real. Yeah. And that within that kind of space, that then they do have a sort of autonomy and that they can, you end up with this sort of like lacuna thing where it's like, we've like, yes, you do exist in my imagination. I did have to start imagining the creepy ring ghost before she showed up in the room. But now that I, now that she's here, she's here. Yeah, right. And I can't get her to leave. Yeah. <laughs> and that, that sort of notion of of what a ghost would be or how ghost mechanics or something like that work in yeah. in terms of a horror story feels compelling to me at this point. Totally. Yeah. Totally. And and like I was saying with this this story the optimism that I have comes with that when the mind does manifest it and is like, "Oh, now I can't unsee this," you know. Like Perhaps you can. <laughs> yeah. In some way. Yeah. Um, yeah, definitely. Oh, fuck. I had an I, I had a thought that I was gonna. Oh, I derailed that. That was a good point though. <laughs> well, if if you think uh, of wait, what your yeah. thought was, just jump in. Yeah, wait. Uh, so we 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 were talking you were talking about the mind manifesting it and um us, you know, all having sort of different perceptions, different limits to our senses. Uh yeah. and then the idea that like you do maybe have to imagine something before it becomes real. Oh yeah. So I was thinking the, the, the thing that often, um, the thing that, that people I think get skeptical about ghosts and all of these things is the, the anthropomorphization. Yeah. (laughs) It's when we think of ghosts as an actual, either anti-human, semi-human or, or creature of some sort, you know? But I think those things just appear in our mind because that's the best way for our minds to process the information. Yeah. That if we're talking about archetypal stuff uh, or spirits of a, of a place, spirits of a, of a, an, of a, a process, spirits of a, of an object or material or whatever. We're not actually talking about creatures, but for some reason, the mind works so well when we anthropomorphize it. Yeah. 
like in the same way as a kid will like love a teddy bear. It's not an it's an inanimate object. It's just a piece of cloth with, with stuffing in in the middle, you know, or a bicycle where it's like, yeah, that's my bike. But even now, you know, you go to your car, you go to your bike, you go to your guitar and you're like, that's mine. It has a personality. It does. And like, that wouldn't be irrational if you were just like, you know, like the classic car guy, you know, referring to their car in a, in a feminine sense, you know, yeah, because they're afraid to have a, they're afraid to penetrate the inner <laughs> of a male car. But, but yeah, no, this one, this one's Betty or whatever. That's a good old Betty, you know, yeah. like they're personifying their car and we're just like, yep, he's a car guy. Yeah. Um, but I, I have no doubt that his mental activity perceives it as a thing, you know? Right. If I, like even my computer, it has a personality. It's, I sit and look at my computer every day. It's such a thing. It's such an object that stares back at me that there is a small sliver in my mind where like, this is almost a creature that I'm interacting with, having a conversation with, you know, on a day to day. Yeah. Even though publicly I know that it's not, and I wouldn't say that, I can't really even shut off my mind from feeling that. Right. So it would make sense that when we have strange phenomena that's appearing like ghosts, that we are going to, we're going to process it the way that we do best, which is turning it into an inter, like a creature that we can interact with, you know? And that's the, that's when you get the, the ghost creatures that come at you, the people and the walls, you know, and, and things like that. Um, whereas like what you were saying is it's psychic material. It's just purely imagination, you know? Um, it's just psychology, which is, yeah, not not a tangible physical material, um, but it, it has a real effect, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think that that's like, I mean, some of this has to do with, you know, the to try to make it sound rational again. <laughs> Someday I'll stop caring about that, but... Um, well, also, wait, no, hold that thought, but like rationality, of course, we may have touched upon this before, but rationality is is a way of thinking that is contingent on like frames and contexts. To make something rational, you have to almost, it, it has to be like an equation. You need the equal sign to be like this equals this or something, you know. But some of this phenomena is irrational. It is just outside the frame and... Like, outside the frame, yeah. right? And so, of course, we're going to have a hard time. And if we try to talk about it in a in a honest fashion, we're going to sound like weirdos. Yeah, <laughs> you know, which we like, already so, do. And but, so, there's no I, point worrying about it. But <laughs> yeah, hell yeah, dude, yeah. embrace it. Let your freak flag fry, fry, <laughs> <laughs> fry your flag. Uh, um, no, but then you um, were going to try to be rational. No, that it, it's like some of it even just has to do with that thing that like. I see distinct objects in space right now. You know, I see a microphone in front of me with a mic stand. I see a coffee table. I see a laptop. I see a door. I see a guitar. You know, I see all these things. But the way that everything that I'm seeing is still an illusion in the sense that just physically speaking, it's a whole bunch of tiny particles. You know, it's light, it's heat, it's all these different things, and it's being interpreted by my brain as you know, discrete objects. But these objects aren't the true reality of 
the microphone and the laptop and the guitar or whatever. And so it's more something like seeing the guitar and the laptop and the microphone as different things is like a pragmatic move that it allows me as Wyatt to interact with the environment in which I find myself. And that if I perceived this all as, you know, just the swirling interplay of atoms or something like that, it would be much harder to get stuff done. Well, also, like in an evolutionary sense, you would be so happy in your existence for about five minutes because you would either walk off a cliff (laughs) or you would get killed by an animal, you know? Um, So while we would love to see the atomic existence of everything, it's not practical for survival. Exactly. And so this, we're sort of back into like what we were talking about in the unearthing episode with like, you know, the arbitrariness of Kabbalah or any of these, these systems and maps that, you know, are, our default experience of reality is also arbitrary, but not yeah. in the sense, not in the sort of mistaken sense of meaning that it's it's not real or it's chosen at whim or something like that, but that it's, um, it works. <laughs> it definitely yeah. works for me to conceive of myself as this and the laptop as that and, and all yeah. that kind of stuff. And that that's what allows this entire experience to happen. Yeah, right. And that... But somewhere in there is, you know, and this does seem to be a a good amount of what, you know, a a common thing through, you know, mystical traditions in general is, you know, the kind of remembering or waking back up to the idea that like, oh, right, that's arbitrary. Right. That's, that is a framework that allows me to get stuff done, but that's not the true, you know, state of things. And so that when you start to think about more, you know, okay, well then what would the true state of things be that, that, you know, swirling eternity of all things existing simultaneously together on top of each other in one timeless space or whatever, then it does start to feel like, so I'm having to imagine my way back to structured reality from that. So there's already a kind of creation happening just by making the mundane world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Out Dude, of that, absolutely. and so then, yeah, then the idea that something less less mundane would be able to come back from that, like via that imagination, seems like that actually makes a lot of Dude, sense. Dude, yeah, and I have to, I have to give uh, some credit to my that my friend that I went to the Lamont Young concert with. Um, uh, he's so he studies biology and stuff. And after the concert, we were talking, and he brought up a really good point. My friend Mike. Um, shout out to Mike. Uh, Is this Mike with the dad? Yeah. <laughs> Hell yeah. Yeah, Mike's dad. Absolutely. Shout out to Mike's dad. <laughs> Pete. I've, Pete. I've heard so much about you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but, okay, no, anyway. but, I mean, Mike, Mike is a hard, rational, like, person, but he's great to talk to about this stuff because he believes me, you know, and that's all that it mm-hmm. takes. But he brought up a really good point from a scientific perspective uh, standpoint because he's he does research stuff too and he was basically saying he's he was like no i understand where you're coming from because scientists have to use their imagination they have to basically imagine the possible worlds before they go through with uh, an experiment yeah you know they're not walking blindly in through an experiment they have to imagine that some things are possible yet they don't really know it's possible that it could be this, it possibly not, you know, 
they have to use this deep imagination to dive into this world. And and we were discussing, and, and in my opinion, I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's sort of like tied into, you know, Kabbalah and magic and stuff. Whereas from a magician's standpoint, it's it's like this different type of creativity where you dive into it, you know, whereas the creativity of the mind and imagination of a scientist is the sort of application which then uh, like gives foundation to a rational language. So yeah, the cornerstone of that rational language is this imagination that has to go into from, yeah, right. You know, a scientist needs that imagination to then create rational language and tell us like, no, we can tangibly recreate this in our physical world. You know, so it's it's critical to the, and that was a cool moment with him and, and me because we're like, oh yeah, you know, bridging bridging the worlds in some way. Yeah, because I, I do think that, I mean, oftentimes, I, I guess I would probably say that the biggest, the biggest mistake often made on, on either end of that bridge is the attempt to make the other side of the bridge just be your side. Yeah, right. You know, is the idea exactly. that like, if we're on the woo-woo side that we're trying, it's like whenever you read some woo book that starts talking about quantum mechanics, I start to get a little like, okay, do you do you really know about physics or is this just yeah. like pop physics? Like, cause, right. Because right. that's not, we don't need to talk about quantum shit. I'm already reading a book about demons. We don't need to talk about that. <laughs> like, <laughs> I mean, and if you really want to get uh, flipped out, go talk to a quantum physicist. Well, exactly. Know? And like, and they're not, they're not thinking that it's woo woo that, you know, no. they're like, we're actually, we're trying, they're coming up with concepts before the math is even there. You right. Know? And, and that trips me out. Like, yeah. Leave, oh, seriously. You can leave it to them. Yeah. You can leave it to them. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's sort of my feeling that like, you know, what I, if there's anything that I want, it's, it's more like a state where the stuff we're talking about doesn't get, ridiculed but nor do people talking about the stuff we're into feel the need to make it sound like it's a science yeah right because i get that's like yeah it isn't you know it yeah it, there might be overlap area you know like like a bridge right. between two you know countries or something there might be a there's there's a lot of spots where it's like where am i what am i you know but there is a point where it's yeah. like no 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 we're doing the other thing now we're in the other territory yeah. and so it's more of like a I think the thing that I get kind of sick of sometimes is the idea that there is only one, that there's only one legitimate angle on things. Right. right. And that, you know, if you're talking to a Dawkins type person, that then that angle is the Dawkins angle. If you're talking to a Christian, then that angle is biblical, is a scriptural angle. If you're talking to a right. Thelemite, then it's, you know, whatever. Like that, that's the thing that, that bums right. me out because it feels like that's not really necessary. Um, Right, absolutely. I mean, because yeah. there's the simple observation that uh, despite all of our disagreements or our different perceptions, we for somehow all inhabit the same space. <laughs> so we all draw from the same material. And the fact that our imaginations can make turn it into other things, you know, we're all we're all molding from the same clay. So it has to be that it's it's all neither 
you know, perfect truth or not, or or perfect lie, you know, like it's it it just is. It's, it just it's is the material that we. It, yeah. it just is, you know. No, and it it makes me think like just quickly, you know, about endless music analogies, but just that like, you know, the existence of because I can think sometimes it, I could imagine this as being what, what we often encounter as kind of the argument between a the imaginary argument between Richard Dawkins and Aleister Crowley, you know, as being, yeah. there could be a similar argument between an imaginary argument between, you know, uh, Mozart and John Cage. Right. Or something like that. And uh, I think you do, I know I've encountered over the years, a lot of that kind of thinking in art and music and all that, that uh, the stuff that started to happen in the middle 20th century, where all these walls between proper and improper and and uh respectable and unrespectable start to get broken down and you know, yeah. mu- music gets much stranger and art stops having to be representational or whatever that you can get either this very stuffy angle of you know I don't why do I want to look at some asshole you know splattering can paint on a canvas I want to see real paintings and that then right. you get you get the flip of that where somebody's saying why do I want to see somebody realistically draw a horse <laughs> you know, I, I want right. to see uh, somebody, you know, <laughs> dragging a tampon over a canvas, you know, with right. whatever. And it's like, <laughs> the thing I've, or with music or whatever, like the thing I've, I've thought is that, like the existence of harsh noise doesn't obliterate Bach. You know, Mer- yeah, Merzbau and Bach are both parts of the musical landscape. Yeah. And, you know, I can be more aligned with a kind of, you know, I, I'm way more into Autechre and Coil and that stuff than I am into John Coltrane or, uh, you know, Leonard Bernstein or, you know, yeah. whatever. But that my saying, you know, that I resonate more with one angle doesn't have anything to do with that other stuff is invalid or that other stuff right. shouldn't exist. Yeah. It's an affront to my view of reality. Right, like, right. Exactly, yeah. So uh, there was... There was a funny thing, like this is this is why I do like Crowley. Um, I do too. I was, <laughs> I did, both, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, there was funny because I was, I like it was on Halloween. I was doing tarot, uh, and uh, this woman came up to get her reading, and she was she's like, I read tarot too, and she's like, but I don't use his deck. I don't use this deck because I was using the Thoth deck. But she's like, I have. Crowley issues. <laughs> and I just I just laughed because I was like, yeah, as many people do. Yeah. You know? Uh, and that's um, fine. Whatever. That's... But yeah, that's fine. That's fine. But the reason why I bring up Crowley is because in the beginning, I think it's in it's in book four, Libra ABA, uh the the editor's introduction, which is Hymenius Beta. Bill Breeze. Uh, Bill Breeze, his his introduction, he makes a really good point of why. Crowley chooses the term holy guardian angel. Yeah. So we're talking about language, you know? Um, and he's, he he basically writes that throughout Crowley's career, Crowley informed this decision in different ways. Uh, like, number one, um, we're talking about something that is basically supra-rational, like we were saying, beyond rationality, so all language is insufficient, you know? So you could call it whatever you want. And James has told me this too, you know, like uh, uh, Robert Anton Wilson would use the term 
giant pink runny bunny rabbit or something like that, right? Uh, and I, and that's a term that it's completely fine. You can use it because all of it is absurd. There's, you know, um, he said another way is it's like, it's so easy a child can remember it, you know? Yeah, holy guardian angel, whatever, you know, it's very easy thing to remember. But the the other point that I really liked, he's like, why not use a language that absolutely terrifies metaphysical man, I think is the quote or something. It's like basically use the language that's going to scare superstitious people because it forces them to come to terms with this. It forces them to start the journey of saying like, no, this isn't a language. And the language that I'm using isn't really all that important. It's just a vehicle to get me to the concept and the concept is a vehicle to get me to this like gnosis or state of understanding, you know? And so you can use whatever languages you, you want. And and I think this is pretty telling of Crowley's character where he's like, I'm going to, I'm just going to use this, the, the, the stuff that scares people <laughs> because it, it separates the wheat from the chaff and it, it allows people to, you know, whether or not that is a good thing, I, whatever, you know, but it allows people to overcome their own superstitions and then to come to terms with things that they might've been chained down on for so long, you know? I mean, I do think that there's something like, this is a whole, we're getting very far away from the canal and it doesn't matter. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It just doesn't matter. Canal's fun. Well, it it comes comes to the idea of the ghosts, and our our relationship to this spiritual material and this energy, you know, and how we perceive it. Or, but yeah. Okay, so this this does still apply to ghosts. In it does still apply to horror fiction in the in the sense that you know, on some level, a little bit of that like be careful what you wish for. You know, you never know what you're getting involved in when you find an old film reel and string it up and watch it and now your whole life is different or something like that, that there is something that, um, you know, I've, this came up a bit on, uh, it, one of one or other of the Ligotti or the Crampton episodes, um, in terms of like the Stephen Norquist haunted universe, you know, I thought meditation was cool and fun and it was going to be nice. And then it ended up being horrifying or whatever. And this is something that Daniel Ingram, who I've, I brought up in that episode too, has, has also said um, about, okay, so, you know, we've, we've got the whole thing for, I don't know how long it's been going on, but a, a bunch of years at least of this sort of like Google mindfulness thing of like the, the Calm app or the Headspace app or like this idea that like, yeah, uh, a sort of kind of, kind of um, co- corporatized pseudo meditation thing that is like, okay, we're going to use basically like Vipassana meditation techniques. We're going to strip away everything that seems vaguely Buddhist about them uh, because this doesn't have anything to do with any of that stuff. This is just a way for you to calm down so that you can keep doing your Silicon Valley nightmare job (laughs) that you don't actually want to do. And the reason why you're so stressed out and you can't sleep and you can't work is because you actually hate your life. Yeah. And you want desperately for something to change, but you can't figure out how to make that happen. And so instead of addressing the real problem, your overlords have said, use this app, <laughs> count your count your breathing, whatever it is, so that then you can calm down and keep trudging on to the grave. Mm. Um, very dark way to put it. <laughs> um, 
But that one of the things Daniel Ingram has said on multiple occasions is that, okay, look, fine. Like, it's, it's not our place to necessarily say that everybody who has is in that kind of position is miserable. And yeah, fine. You can use a lot of these techniques and kind of secularize them and, and get um, very clear benefits from them. Mm. But one of the things that he is cautioned against that he's been sort of wary of is the idea that like, you can't, basically there is no such thing as informed consent where the inward journey is concerned. Mm. that you cannot actually know where this is going to take you until it's taken you there. Oh, right. And so that you might think, oh, I'm just using an app to count my breath and whatever, but that then in that process, you don't think you're doing anything with your soul or with your psyche or with whatever, but something starts to happen in your head. And now you're having panic attacks. Now you're seeing visions. Now you're whatever. Because what you've actually done is set off on a spiritual path. Right. But you thought you were doing your 10-minute break uh, between shifts at uh, Amazon or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. You know? And that's where he's... There's a a similar idea that, you know, you can't necessarily recommend things like meditation or magical practice or whatever because to recommend it implies that you know where it's going to take the person. Yeah, yeah. You know that, and when I think about my own kind of journey on all this, you know, which has been going on a long time, that it's like, yeah, it's gone through a lot of different stages. It's gone, you know, through a a lot of of very weird territory at times. And I definitely don't feel confident that I don't think I could go back and tell 16-year-old me, oh, yeah, dude, it'll be fine. Mm, you know, that, yeah. that I, I start to think, that's not really something I, I can say I can do. What, I, what instead I can do is, well, 16-year-old me decided to initiate this. Yeah. And now 36-year-old me can say, well, here we are. <laughs> right. we're, we're doing it. Yeah. We're in the middle of it. We figured out how to make it work. We've gotten more accustomed to it or something like that. But it does make me think that if somebody were to say, hey, Wyatt, hey, Dave, I've been listening to your podcast. I've been... I don't think you guys sound insane at all. I'm really interested in all the the stuff that you're talking about with magic and mysticism and everything. You know, should I get involved in it? It would be like, well, do what you like. <laughs> um, yeah, right. Uh, if yeah. you decide yeah. to get involved in this, uh, yeah. feel free to <laughs> talk to me about it. But <laughs> right, yeah, uh, I don't exactly. really feel like I can say, oh yeah, you should definitely do it. Right. And that's what that's what ties into these movies, like you know the canal, like this. Oh, they did a satanic ritual, and now this place is haunted. And if you go to it, you get sucked in, and you have no say. You know, talk about like informed consent. You have none. You know, um, and there is there is a. I mean, that's that's a a fearful representation of it. That's an outsider's fear of it. You know, like I don't want to break my brain, or I don't want to change myself. You know where I can't understand it. You know? But that is also kind of the point of this stuff <laughs> is to come into contact with things that you're not necessarily comfortable with, which allows growth to occur. Um, and so, right, you, you have to be careful on how you say that to someone, you know, because you will get haunted in some way. Oh, yeah. But, 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely stuff can start. Uh, I mean, this is such a common thing through, you know, paranormal horror in general, but is is that kind of like, I didn't think this would happen. You know, right. I thought we were going to the old haunted house and we were going to say Bloody Mary in the mirror and we were going to have a spooky time. I didn't think this was going to happen. Yeah. I was right. just trying to buy right. a house from to start my family in. I didn't think that five years later this would happen, you know? Right. And that's the horror movie side of it is like to terrify you so it's only the bad stuff. Exactly. And I, I yeah. But I, I do, yeah, I do think there is there is always multiple angles. Yeah, there are. <laughs> and like, I'm personally quite happy that I've become haunted by certain activities that I've partaken in. You know, I have ultimately, at least for the time being, that's where I'm at too. Is you know that it's a kind of um, this is this has been very hard, but you yeah, know, it's yeah, and and some of it, at least for me, has to do with the sort of realization that I never really had a choice. <laughs> that it was, mm. this was all set in motion long before me. And that mm. I, it just yeah. seems like you have a choice. Um, mm. But I do think, I mean, because this is, you know, it, it's, I, I wonder sometimes if, there, I mean, certainly by this deep into the show, there's nobody who's been listening to this who thinks that we're film reviewers or um, <laughs> <laughs> anything like that. Because we, we've... Or yeah. they're the most charitable person in the world where they think, man, these guys are really bad at reviewing movies. <laughs> but they seem like they're having fun. So I just really like uh, supporting yeah. them. But, but no, I mean, I, I really do think that, I mean, a big, or I, I don't think it, I know it, that like a big part of why I continue to find it useful to frame these types of discussions around like horror fiction and all of that is is because that's kind of the one at least in my experience, it's kind of the one territory that are the sort of like late 20th, early 21st century, like irreligious uh, Western world allows for weirdness, allows for this yeah. kind of stuff. And, and the sense that like, that I've had for, since I was a young kid, that there is something numinous about horror that there is something when you see both in movies, when you watch a horror movie, a really good ghost story or something, that there is something in the, the, the dread that you feel that does seem to also contain like the feelings of the approach to some kind of, you know, something holy. And that yeah. as somebody, you know, from myself who, was raised entirely without religion, but then knowing lots of other people who were raised with some amount of religion, but then either never had any interest in it or rebelled against it or whatever it is, that horror, there is still something in horror media that I think it's a space where the genuinely numinous can still exist, but it doesn't feel like we're engaging with something as stodgy and and awful as religion or tradition or these things that we, we want yeah. to rebel against. Um, right. And yeah. so even though, you know, then after a while I start getting actually into, okay, so I think my interest in ghosts and stuff has a lot more to do with this sense of numinousness and, and all that. I think I want to kind of go down that route. The ghost stuff never stops being interesting. The horror stuff never stops being interesting to me. Um, mm. 
Yeah, because it's still a... <laughs> yeah, no, I you know, feel similar. It still does feel like the place where where that kind of stuff can can best be expressed in our kind of present cultural moment. This has been the Modern Rubbish Podcast. You can follow us on Instagram at Modern Rubbish Podcast, and you can find show notes, links, and more at modernrubbish.ca. If you enjoy what you heard, please give us a five-star rating and feel free to reach out to us via email at modernrubbishpodcast at gmail.com. Finally, if you'd like to help support what we do, you can become a patron on Patreon or you can make a donation via Ko-fi. This podcast is a labor of love and all of your support means the world to us. Thank you.